What's up? Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian. Nando Vila is not here today. He's off, but I'm super excited for Jen Pan to join in and help me do the show today. Jen, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Anna, it's been a righteous week for Jacobin Channel crossover. If anybody missed it, Nando was on the Jacobin Show last Wednesday. Um, obviously, I am Nando today, <laughs> and I'm I'm really excited for the show. We, of course, have Thomas Frank, uh, columnist at The Guardian uh, and elsewhere, coming on to talk to us in a little bit. Um, we've got a great show. Anna, how are you? I'm doing okay. I missed you guys uh, last week. I, I I had that week off, and um, that's part of the reason why Kale filled in for me, and I'm super grateful for that. But it's really good to be back. I'm looking forward to both of our Decode segments today, not just doing the Decodes, but having discussions about them. You're tackling the issue of homelessness, uh, and I am too, to some extent, but from a different angle and how uh, poverty and this you know, profit motive behind housing has uh, really accelerated homelessness to mm-hmm. the point where people uh, are not just living out in the streets or in cars, but also a huge portion of this country is living in hotels and motels. So I'm going to break that down. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get to that, though, Jen, um, you know, I thought that maybe it would be a good idea to talk a little bit about the Biden administration's messaging on the topic of unemployment insurance, because I feel that uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary for the White House, missed an opportunity to do What needs to be done in calling out the GOP in their austerity measures, their efforts to essentially cut unemployment benefits prematurely to force people to go back to jobs that don't pay them a living wage. So let me set this up for you guys. During a recent White House press conference, Jen Psaki was asked about the unemployment benefits that have been provided by the federal government as part of Joe Biden's coronavirus relief package. Now, as you guys have probably seen, there are GOP lawmakers and GOP governors who are raising alarm about just how generous these unemployment benefits are and how it's discouraging people to go back to work. In fact, people are making more money off of sitting at home, uh, collecting unemployment, and as a result, there's a labor shortage. Now, we've done many segments debunking that, um, and we can talk about that in more detail after this clip, but get a load of how Jen Psaki is handling this question. There seems to be a bit of a shift in here because last month the president was pretty adamant that he did not believe that these enhanced unemployment benefits were playing a role or factoring into people's decisions not to get back into the jobs market. Today, though, he's underscoring that these benefits are simply temporary, set to expire in 90 days. So which is it, yes or no, does the president believe that these unemployment benefits are playing a role here? Well, I think we shouldn't lose sight of some basic facts here, which is that the, those governors who have made the decision, as they have every right to do, to pull back on the unemployment benefits or not accept them, I should say, accurately, that hasn't even taken effect in any state across the country. So in terms of how we're evaluating the impact, we haven't even seen the impact yet. That takes effect in June. It is important for people to understand uh, factually that the president, no one from the administration, has ever proposed making these permanent or doing it over the long term. And sometimes I think that that was just an, if- an effort to make that clear in the public. So, Jen, the main line there that really caught people's attention uh, is, you know, the governors have every right to do it. Yeah. It was such a missed opportunity. What do you think? 
Uh, completely agree. I mean, you know, uh, first of all, that kind of fallback on the right wing states rights rhetoric is a little weird and shocking coming from, I think, the Biden administration, which, you know, to its credit has been imperfect, but has really, I think, stepped forward, especially from Biden's uh, work in the in the Obama administration in terms of creating a federal response to what is obviously a national crisis. Right. So to suddenly fall back on this like as I said, right-wing rhetoric of states' rights is really disappointing. And like you said, it's a huge missed opportunity because the first thing I thought when I was listening to Jen Psaki was just, I or I felt a kind of wave of deja vu because this has been the Republican line since the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, when the pandemic was at its height in 2020, Republicans were like, no, we can't do the uh, $600 uh, unemployment insurance supplement because... We, we need people to get back to work. And of course, that was particularly ridiculous back then when, you know, the pandemic, as I said, was at its height and people were literally dying, going to the hospital. Um, we still didn't know what exactly uh, the pandemic would look like. Obviously, things are a little bit different now because, you know, uh, more people are getting vaccinated. Um, you know, people are returning back to work. Things are opening back up. But, um, you know, looking at this topic, I recently came across an article in Business Insider, which talked about how out of the 25 states where governors are trying to push people back to work by un ending unemployment benefits, 15 of those have lower than average vaccination rates, right? So the crisis clearly isn't over yet. Um, and, and there's a lot more we can say about why, you know, cutting unemployment insurance is so cruel, not just during a crisis, but at any time. Um, but it's like you said, it's a huge missed opportunity. It really is. I mean, it, it, it's it's incredible how often the Democratic Party just kind of goes along with the framing and the talking points by the GOP. Because mm -hmm. in reality, I mean, it, it's not rocket science. Americans have been suffering. We're suffering financially prior to the coronavirus pandemic. And part of what made Donald Trump popular in his messaging, even though he was full of it and wasn't actually being sincere, was that he was at least providing some fodder and, and addressing rhetorically yeah. the economic anxieties of Americans. And again, I want to emphasize the word rhetorically because right, his right. actions certainly countered what he claimed to care about. Mm -hmm. uh, but what what the Biden administration could easily do is use this as an opportunity to strategize against the GOP, differentiate themselves from the GOP yep. and say, listen, uh, if they're so concerned about these corporations and their inability to get people back to work, maybe they should focus on the fact that these corporations aren't paying a living wage. But they're not doing that. They're mm -hmm. just kind of going along with the neoliberal framing of, yep. of the economy and the economic situation that Americans are facing today. It's just disgusting and wrong. And I don't think it's a mistake. I think that at the end of the day, both parties do serve the same business interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, when yeah. you look at how their campaigns are funded, uh, Biden had a, a very sharp 180 on his coronavirus relief package after meeting with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. So he has this meeting in the Oval Office with business interests and immediately he starts talking about maybe we should do means testing, more means testing. Maybe we should cut the unemployment benefit um, amount from $400 a week to $300 a week. Yep. So um, it's not a mistake. Uh, yeah. And it is a missed opportunity, but I don't think it's a mistake right. that they're doing this. Right. Mark Dudzik, who um, you guys have had on The Weekend Show before and you know who was one of the founders of the U.S. Labor Party, um, he always says, 
the bosses have two parties. We need one of our own. And of course, third parties is like another can of worms that I don't think we'll have the time to get into today. Um, but but I just want to address one other thing that Jen Saki said. So in you know the clip that you rolled, um, she said something along the lines of, well, we don't really know if the unemployment benefits are really preventing people from getting back to work. We don't, we don't know. The thing is, we do kind of know. Um, we actually have decades of evidence that show that unemployment benefits don't actually... Uh, prevent people from going back to work. Uh, Nando did a great decode on that a few weeks ago, I believe. Uh, we we also know actually that work requirements, aka you know um, stipulations in things like welfare, cash assistance, and unemployment, which kind of say that people have to be in jobs or looking for jobs or volunteering if they want to continue receiving these benefits. We since welfare reform, we have like decades of evidence that that doesn't actually get people back to work. So we do know, you know, and I, I think mm-hmm. that just goes back to your point again, that um, this isn't really an accident. I mean, it is a missed opportunity for an administration that has shown some willingness to help American people. Uh, it is a missed opportunity, but at the same time, like you were saying, it's not a surprise and it's not by accident. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. Well, before we get to our decode segments, we're going to bring in Kale a little early to tell you guys about one of our partners. Uh, So Kale, take it away. Yeah, that's right. Just like Jen, I am also filling in Fernando this weekend. Uh, (laughs) It's very big shoes that two people can fill, apparently. We Uh, have two Nandos. (laughs) We have two Nandos. Um, but uh, I'm here to tell you that you should join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club book club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. For as long as you are a subscriber, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in June, you will get these four books. Uh, The Revenge of the Real, Post-Pandemic Politics by Benjamin Bratton. You'll also get Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism by Owen Hatherley. Owen Rules, you should definitely read that book. Uh, China and One Village, The Story of One Town and the Changing World by Liang Hong. And finally, uh, this is not a brand new book, but it's been around for a while and people should read it, Uh, Comrade, an Essay on Political Belonging by Jody Dean. Join the Verso Book Club, get those books. and uh, I like the cover right. for Comrade. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. no doubt about what it's about. It's very clear. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's super clear. Yeah. Um, all right. And Kale will rejoin us uh, to help us answer some of your super chat questions. So I do encourage you guys to write in your super chats, whether they're questions or comments, and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible toward the end of the show. All right, Jen, you ready to do our decodes? You know what? I, I am ready, but actually to go back to the subject of unemployment benefits, um, there was something that sure. I wanted to quickly like put out there, which is back to the subject of deja vu and feeling like we've had this conversation over and over before. Just for a kind of feel-good moment, I wanted to run this clip of Bernie Sanders, who uh, you know famously had a viral moment where he kind of came out against Republican posturing about the um, unemployment benefits at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And everything he said is still like obviously super relevant right now. And like this is how it's done. So let's watch it. And now I find that some of my Republican colleagues are very distressed. They're very upset that somebody who's making 10, 12 bucks an hour might end up with a paycheck for four months more than they received last week. Oh, my God, the universe is collapsing. 
Imagine that. Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour, now like the rest of us, faces an unprecedented economic crisis with the 600 bucks on top of their normal, their regular unemployment check, might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh, my word! Will the universe survive? How absurd and wrong is that? What kind of value system is that? Meanwhile, these very same folks had no problem a couple of years ago voting for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and large profitable corporations. Not a problem. An iconic moment, which, you know, never gets old in my book. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think we do need reminders uh, every once in a while that there are some good people fighting on behalf of workers in in Congress. Uh, It's easy to forget, uh, but it's just so nice to... And by the way, that's the way to handle it, right? To mock the ridiculousness of the arguments that they're making. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right, so... Let's shift to Decode. Uh, I'm really excited for yours. So what what have you got? Well, um, mine was really inspired by a fantastic investigative piece in the New York Times recently that focused on the number of Americans who are living in poverty, who aren't necessarily living on the streets, but can't afford housing and find themselves essentially paying week to week in motels across the country. And that number really exploded uh, in 2008. I want to talk about what's led to this situation and what could be done to solve it. So During the coronavirus pandemic, private equity firm Blackstone realized that it just could not let another disaster go to waste. So they decided to prey on the country's poor even further by investing heavily in the extended stay hotel business. Blackstone and Starwood Capital acquiring Extended Stay America for $6 billion. This is, guys, one of the few hotel brands that did thrive during the pandemic, offering furnished rooms and a kitchenette at a lower price. It did see strong demand last year from construction and healthcare workers. An average occupancy, get this, of 74% compared to the industry average of 44% last year. So I want to talk about the statistics that she mentioned in that video, because it's the exact reason why Blackstone, a private equity firm that is in the business of snatching up residential properties across the country and turning them into rentals, would want to invest in extended stay hotels. Now, extended stay hotels typically house individuals who are unable to rent a traditional apartment. And so when you look at the numbers in Typical hotels, traditional hotels versus extended stay hotels, you'll notice a trend. The broader hotel industry endured enormous losses during the coronavirus pandemic, with occupancy rates plummeting to 44% for 2020. Extended stay America's occupancy rate was around 74%. The publicly held company has experienced industry-defying prosperity during the pandemic. $96 million in profits on revenues of $1 billion in 2020. 
So that is exactly why Blackstone would be interested in investing in the extended stay uh, business. It's because, first off, obviously, when it came to the coronavirus pandemic, they didn't have to worry about losing business because people are literally living there long term. And also, as more and more Americans get pushed out of the housing market, get pushed out of uh, being able to even afford regular apartments, they're finding shelter in these you know, extended stay hotels that allow people to pay uh, week to week. Now, the CEO of Extended Stay provided some more insight on this trend by saying, quote, we learned in pretty hard, we leaned in pretty hard early onto some of the more longer term, lower rated businesses to fill up our hotels. We call that sort of our residential, uh, we call that sort of our residential bucket. So what he's referring to there is, Yeah, we know that people are now literally living in these hotels. We want to corner that market just as we've cornered uh, other forms of housing, including uh, trailer parks, by the way. And so they put in their money and they want to be the landlord of not just people who are renting their uh, homes and their apartments, but people who have no other choice but to live in these extended stay hotels. So uh, the truth is, when you look at the numbers uh, and how much they've exploded in recent year- years, you'll get an understanding of how, honestly, the housing situation um, and this economy has destroyed the financial stability of so many Americans. For instance, uh, there are 5.6 million hotel rooms in the United States, according to STR. That's a hospitality research firm. Roughly half a million of them are classified as extended stay. And that's actually up from 200,000 two decades ago. So the number is rapidly increasing. And this has a serious impact on children as well. The numbers are just incredibly depressing. As more adults, for instance, have moved into hotels and motels, so have more school children. 97,640 lived in these settings during the 2018 to 2019 school year, up from 45,781 in 2004 to 2005. And that's according to the National Center for Homeless Education. And the situation has gotten so bad that there are literally public school districts across the country that are making bus stops to pick up children from these hotels and motels. Columbus City Schools in Ohio, for instance, classified 3,431 students as homeless in the school year that ended in 2020, including 204 who lived in hotels or motels. The school system makes 16 bus stops at hotels or motels um, and extended stays. Uh, when you look at Georgia, you see a very similar situation in uh, Winnett County Public Schools, for instance, the largest school district in Georgia, 91 bus stops at hotels, motels or extended stays pick up nearly 600 students. And as you can imagine, the living conditions in these extended stay hotels are pretty dire. Even before the coronavirus pandemic, low income areas of Orlando were plagued by a lack of affordable housing, with families packing into crumbling motels. The Star Motel in Kissimmee, which was in disarray before the pandemic hit, was pushed over the edge by the recent economic shutdown. The motel's owner abandoned it in December. Since then, residents have been left to run the place. The power has been shut off at least four times. Go and tell her to come and see, because they're shutting the power right now. Right now, tell her to come and see it. In early August, the electric company trucks were back again. 
The motel's residents needed to pay $1,500 to keep the power on. Have you paid anything? Had you done anything yeah, for actually, us? Yeah, actually, I have for us for you because I just messaged him. Receipt from what I just paid on the letter. Right now. I have it on the face too. It's absolutely heartbreaking to watch that. And it's not an isolated case. Uh, this is what people are experiencing across the country in every state. And while financial advisors argue that Americans shouldn't pay more than 30% of their income on housing, the aftermath of the 2008 economic collapse made that impossible. Think about it. Wages remained stagnant. People were evicted, kicked out of their homes. And you have private equity firms buying up all the residential property, manipulating the market, lowering the inventory of available homes. I mean, it has been a complete and utter disaster for the very victims of that economic collapse. And they're feeling the ramifications of that even today. Watch. I make $13 an hour. I get a 400 and something, $20 weekly. I have to make three times the income to get a house. And I'm head of household. Even if I were by myself with my daughter, I wouldn't make it because a two bedroom is not 1200. A two bedroom is 1400, it's 1500. If you find uh, low housing, do you have like a three year wait? Minimum six months, but that will never happen because there's so many people looking for affordable housing right now that I have been told that it's a three year wait. And even before the 2008 economic collapse, the economy was already grappling with low-income housing shortages. And this is an important part of the story. It's something that I think we need to really focus on quite often uh, when we discuss the issue of affordable housing, because there was a notable shift in the 1980s that needs to be addressed today. For instance, by the mid-1980s, federal and state governments mostly stopped building public housing directly. The thinking was that private investors lured with tax credits would build enough affordable housing instead. And as you can imagine, that did not work out so well. The policy largely failed people with extremely low incomes. And over roughly the same period, the available public housing units declined to 9,000, I'm sorry, 958,000 at the end of 2020 from 1.4 million in 1990, according to HUD. It's the portion of the housing stock declining the most, says Andrew um, Arand, uh, the vice president for research at the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Once you start contracting these development projects to private industry that has a profit motive, clearly they're not going to do what's necessary in providing housing for low-income families. I mean, we've seen how much of a failure this project has been for decades. And unfortunately, that same strategy is being utilized across the country. In the state of California, for instance, where we increased our taxes, there was a ballot initiative called HHH, and it overwhelmingly passed because Californians wanted to pay a little more in taxes to ensure that we were building more affordable housing. That project so far has been a failure because uh, state and local politicians have decided rather than creating government jobs, construction jobs, and building these homes through those jobs, they've instead decided to grant 
contracts to private real estate developers who have been obviously incredibly awful, as is noticed by the exploding homeless population in the state of California. Now, the lack of affordable housing coupled with stagnant wages has created this recipe for disaster. Like millions of Americans, Carla and her family are caught in the long wake of the 2008 financial crisis. What happened when we hit the foreclosure crisis is that all of a sudden, millions of families lost their homes. They became renters competing in the same rental housing market. And at the same time, incomes were going down, even if you could keep your job. And that led to a rental affordability crisis in this country that's as bad as it's ever been in our history. Did he come with a dollar? We have over 11 million renter households that are paying more than half of their income towards their rent each month. That means that they are, you know, one emergency, uh, one broken down car, one illness, one missed day of work away from not being able to pay the rent. And you shouldn't minimize the impact of low-paying jobs and the emergence of the gig economy, which certainly has also contributed to this problem. For instance, one in five adults who wanted more work were doing without full-time work in late 2019, and that's according to the Federal Reserve. And 53 million people have low-wage jobs, research from the Brookings Institution shows. An expanding industry built on informal and impermanent housing is a reflection of the precariousness that increasingly defines daily life for millions of Americans. But one of the other contributing factors that needs to be discussed is the financial surveillance that takes place in this country, something that Americans do not opt into, something that Americans cannot opt out of, and something that certainly has all sorts of privacy concerns tangled into uh, the economic anxiety that it leads to. So what I'm talking about here is credit monitoring. And credit monitoring is what uh, is used by banks uh, to decide whether or not you deserve a loan or a mortgage. Uh, It's used by employers to decide whether or not you are worthy of a job if you're trustworthy enough to employ. And it's also used by landlords to decide whether they're willing to take the risk risk in leasing their property to you so you can live. Now, the problem is after the 2008 economic collapse, many people were evicted from their homes. They were foreclosed on. And that obviously ends up on credit reports, which landlords take a look at to decide whether or not they're going to lease or rent to any individual or family. Um, In fact, uh, if you take a look at how credit reports are really done, again, something that we can't even opt into, uh, or I'm sorry, opt out of, the fact of the matter is these reports that are relied on so heavily have all sorts of errors and flaws. So even if you do everything right, even if you haven't been evicted, even if you weren't a victim of the 2008 economic collapse, you might find that your credit report has all sorts of errors on it that is hurting your chances of qualifying for a loan, qualifying for housing, or qualifying for a job. So CNBC found that the credit reports of about one in five 
five people have an error of some kind. Um, And by the way, that was based on a study done by the Federal Trade Commission. It also doesn't help that these credit bureaus like Experian, TransUnion, Equifax uh, are obviously not spending any money to beef up their security because in 2017, there was a giant data breach. Plaintiff Jamie McDonagall says criminals have already used his information to make four illegal credit inquiries. I never gave Equifax any kind of consent to have my information in the first place. Uh, and so they took my information without my, without my permission and then were careless with it. Today, 36 senators called for federal investigations into three Equifax executives who sold stock before the breach went public, though the company has said the execs didn't know of the breach. What really troubles me is the amount of time it took for Equifax to come forward and and let us know that we were at risk, that our, our identities had been compromised. But will Equifax be held accountable? Already, credit agencies face fewer regulations than banks. Congressional Republicans want to further reduce regulations. The company has spent half a million dollars this year lobbying Congress to ease regulations and its liability in data breaches. Money well spent because while the federal government flirted with the idea of banning employers from using credit reports uh, to decide who they hire and who they don't hire, uh, that really didn't go anywhere. Um, there are some states, some municipalities that are uh, trying to tackle this issue. But the fact of the matter is, uh, generally speaking, employers get to decide whether they hire you by looking at your credit report, which, of course, has no bearing on whether or not someone is qualified for a job or or whether or not you know the credit report would have an impact on their ability to conduct the work that they would be hired for. So really, there are two major solutions to this that we should be advocating for. Number one, there should be more pressure applied to the federal government to ensure that employers cannot look at credit reports in making their hiring decisions. That's number one, because how are people supposed to get out of this giant economic hole If they're not able to get hired as a result of what's on their credit report, if they're not able to make money or or earn income as a result of what's on their credit report, that needs to be banned. That should be illegal. But the most important part of this, in my opinion, has to do with righting the wrongs of the 1980s, where we did this shift from publicly, uh, you know, publicly produced housing Uh, to essentially relying on private industry to construct these homes and these apartments. So what we need to do is get the federal government or even state governments uh, to focus on creating jobs by hiring government employees to construct these homes. And they would, in fact, be low-income homes, public homes that we hand off to people who need it. And, and look, the, the big goal moving forward, honestly, in, and I, it's a long-term goal for obvious reasons, is to take the profit motive out of housing. The reason why landlords are looking at credit reports is because they want to ensure that when they rent to someone, they're getting a return on their investment. And their investment, of course, is the property that they own. So there's the profit motive behind it. We need to do away with that because housing shouldn't have a profit motive. The bare necessities of life to to live a decent life shouldn't have a profit motive. But in the short term, I think a very clear solution is to shift away from relying on private real estate developers by creating jobs, federal or statewide government jobs to construct these homes and ensure that they are meant to benefit low-income households. Jen.
Thanks, Anna. That was great. Um, you know, to your point about the ways that the housing, housing, affordable housing and credit kind of intermingle, uh, something I was thinking about when you were doing your decode is how, although landlords, as you point out, are such sticklers about looking at your credit, like you're probably not going to be able to rent an apartment, let alone a very nice apartment if you have bad credit. But the thing is, building credit is extremely difficult and hilariously and ironically, paying rent on time does not go into your credit score. I think that that just goes to show how stacked the deck is against people who are working class, who are poor, who don't have credit, who are trying to build credit, um, and how tilted the balance of power is in favor of not just, you know, financial institutions, but also landlords, right? Um, and, you know, to the subject of kind of building credit and how expensive it is to be poor in America, so to speak, um, I... I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this experience. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially with regard to what you were talking about, like, this is pretty unremarkable. But I remember when I was in my 20s and I, like, didn't have any credit and I was like, oh, like, you know, maybe I should get a credit card or, like, get a cell phone or whatever. Um, I couldn't open a credit card because I didn't have pre-existing credit, right? So I applied for a credit card. It was denied. Um, and I was like, I don't know how to build credit. Um, and, you know, the same situation repeated itself when I think I went to get like my first iPhone or whatever. And they were like, you don't have any credit. So you need to put down a $500 deposit if you want this phone and you want this phone plan. And again, it just goes to show how how vicious of a cycle it is. Right. Like, how are you supposed to build credit when you can't do things like get a phone bill? Right. Or even get a credit card to begin building credit. And just to add on to that, you know, when I think I finally was like, okay, this is how I'm going to build credit. What I had to do was open a secured credit card, which of course is when you put down a deposit. So I think in this case, it was like Capital One. And, you know, I had to put down a $200 deposit and my credit limit was $200. So it was clearly just a debit card, right? Um, but if you don't have the $200, like what are you supposed to do? So again, right. the credit system is just a complete mess. And it is, as you say, just a, a complete nightmare how heavily uh, not just landlords, but employers rely on this one score, which, as you point out, is also vulnerable to uh, fraud, to mistakes. Um, it, it It is really life ruining. It really is. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that also stands out is just how much people get punished if they like, let's say you've decided, you know what, I'm not into borrowing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in credit cards because think about it in order to build your credit, you got to get a credit card. Right. Like that's step number one, which is a challenge in and of itself, but it encourages people to go into debt. Right. And so it's that is also a problem. And for people who have decided, no, I'm not really, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not interested in that. You know, I have a friend actually who has been saving and saving and saving and finally has a down payment for a modest home. So he's looking to, to buy, but he never really took out credit cards, doesn't really have, he doesn't have bad credit. He just doesn't have credit. Right. And so what he was told was, look, your income is high. You have enough for the down payment. So you'll qualify for the loan, but you have to take out what's called a jumbo loan, mm -hmm. meaning that his interest rate is going to be somewhere around 5% when <laughs> right now the interest rates for mortgages are at historic lows, mm -hmm. far lower than 5%. Yep. And so it, it really does 
um, punish people in so many ways and kind of accelerate economic ruin. And it needs to be addressed because we didn't sign up for this. That's right. the other thing. Right. We're having all of this financial information about us being collected by private companies, these credit bureaus, and they're selling it for profit. Right. And right. it's, it's, you know, it's what social media companies are doing now as well. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, the real OGs of that grift uh, were Experian, TransUnion, mm-hmm, and Equifax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I I didn't pull a screenshot of this article, but I recently saw something in Vox. I think it was yesterday or the day before. And it was talking about um, how credit card re- rewards, so like cash back or like travel points or whatever, um, The article's framing was like, your credit card rewards punish the poor because, you know, the people who have credit cards and who have these rewards, and especially like the higher tier rewards, tend to be more affluent, of course. Um, But what happens is because credit card companies, you know, need to cover those fees and need to cover rewards, they pass on those costs, of course, to businesses who then hike up the costs. So then people who are paying cash, you know, get hit with higher prices. So in in essence, you know, if you're poor, again, you're going to be paying more just because you don't have credit. Now, I think that that phenomenon is probably true, or I mean, we know it's true, right? Like if you're paying in Mm -hmm. cash, as we've just been discussing, like you're going to be hit with this kind of hidden penalty. But I also think, you know, framing it as like, you should feel bad about your credit card rewards is like not not actually what's the problem here, right? Like you're not yeah. like because you got your JetBlue card or whatever, like that's not the problem. The problem is, as you've been saying, this entire system of credit that we are forced to participate in if we want to get uh you know, not just like a favorable mortgage interest rate, but also housing or, you know, like uh, uh, appeal to employers. I mean, we're all basically forced into this system that uh exploits everybody, obviously some more than others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a reason why this system is stacked against us. I mean, in, in one of those clips I showed, you can see how in a short period of time, these credit bureaus uh, spend so much money in political donations. And it's because, you know, they, they want to ensure that they can continue uh, making their profits without the worry or concern of financial uh, regulations. And yeah, it's it's a huge issue. Uh, but, you know, you have um, a, a topic that also hits on the issue of homelessness, although from a different angle, and I'm really excited to hear about it. So why don't you take it away? I'll do it. Um, okay, so... Uh, I mentioned on the Jacobin show last week uh, that I actually recently moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, And if you're following kind of electoral news, uh, you might have seen that in this district last week, there was a special election to fill former Representative Deb Holland's open congressional seat. Deb Holland, of course, is now the Secretary of the Interior. So in this race, the Democratic candidate, whose name is Melanie Stansberry, ultimately won in a landslide. Uh, On one hand, this was not a huge surprise, given that this has been a pretty solidly blue district for about a decade. However, Melanie Stansberry was up against a Republican challenger who tried to hit her hard on Albuquerque's rising crime rates and paint her as a supporter of defunding the police. Now, as a result, even though on many measures, Stansberry is a progressive who supports Medicare for All, a $15 minimum wage, and paid family leave, her TV ads leading up to the election looked like this. I'm District Attorney Raul Torres. I work every day to make this community safer for business and families. That's why I'm supporting Melanie Stansbury for Congress. She's been a strong partner for law enforcement, helping to deliver millions in training, equipment, and salaries for local police. I know she'll have our back in Congress, 
and that's why I have her back. Please join me in voting for Melanie. Gunshot detection, radios, rape kit technology. Melanie Stansberry delivered the tools we need to fight violent crime in Albuquerque. In fact, Melanie helped coordinate public safety funding for the entire metro area. These ads are lies. Mark Moores opposed President Biden's American Rescue Plan, money for families and small businesses, and millions for local law enforcement. Yet Moores took nearly $2 million in PPP money for his own business. I'm Melanie Stansbury, and I approve this message because New Mexico always comes first. So honestly, I don't exactly blame her for being skittish around this topic. Homicides in Albuquerque have doubled since last year. On a very anecdotal level, within a week of arriving here in the city, I was warned multiple times by neighbors and others about the increase in crime. And of course, policing is, as ever, a highly contentious topic. Now, Albuquerque isn't the only city in the U.S. that's seen both an increase in violent crime and the rumblings of law and order backlash. Recently, progressive Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner faced a primary challenge from an opponent who attacked him for being soft on crime and said this during a debate. Mr. Krasner, you have blood on your hands. Milan Longcar, a young man walking his dog. Trevon Register, six-year-old boy beaten to death. Samar Jones, seven-year-old boy killed on his porch. Corporal O'Connor, killed in the line of duty. Gladys Coriano, a domestic violence victim shot in front of her house. Dominic Bila, young man shot in the Franklin Mills Mall. These are just a few of the victims that we can directly put on the incompetence of Larry Krasner. Krasner says he doesn't want to go back to the past, but we have, we have a, murder rate, a, rate, a murder rate and violence rate that rivals the 1990s. Larry has failed to provide real reform. So, like Melanie Stansberry in New Mexico, Krasner won his race with a resounding majority of votes despite all of this fear-mongering. I think that these are pretty promising signs that even in the face of increasing crime, as of right now, Democratic voters in many cities don't seem to be as persuaded by law and order messaging as they were in, say, the 70s or 80s. However, there are also some indications that things can easily go the other way when voters are worried about public safety and officials offer few positive solutions. This can happen even in a notoriously progressive city. Just look at Austin, Texas. So last month in Austin, 58% of voters passed Proposition B, an initiative that reinstated a ban on homeless camping within city limits. Here's what that's going to mean for Austin's homeless population. Once the ordinance goes into effect, it'll once again be a misdemeanor for anyone to sit, lie down, or camp in public areas of Austin. Panhandling at night will also be banned. According to Austin Mayor Steve Adler, the ordinance would go into effect starting May 11th, once the election is certified. So why did a clear majority of voters in a famously liberal city vote in favor of reinstating these kinds of punitive measures, especially when the same city ended the camping ban just two years ago in an effort to decriminalize homelessness? There were a few different factors at work this year. For one thing, it was an off-year election, which meant that voter turnout was low. Only about a quarter of Austin residents cast ballots last month, and unsurprisingly, wealthier areas of the city with higher levels of turnout were more likely to vote in favor of the ban. Secondly, Save Austin Now, which was the political group behind the push to reinstate the camping ban, poured over a million dollars from wealthy donors and business interests into the race. 
Although dozens of progressive and left-leaning advocates, ranging from organizations like the Working Families Party to high-profile politicians like Beto O'Rourke, joined the fight against Proposition B, Save Austin Now outspent the Vote No campaign by nearly 10 to 1. Now, these factors obviously made defeating the proposition an uphill battle from the start, but that said, there was something else that may have flipped voters this year. The unfortunate truth is that other than decriminalizing homeless camping, the city of Austin failed to address the homelessness crisis in any meaningful way in the two years between when the camping ban was struck down and now. One consequence was that between 2019 and 2021, tents and garbage proliferated across parks and public spaces, at least one serious fire broke out at an encampment, a number of people reported harassment or violent incidents around the camps, and yet no substantive progress was made on getting the homeless into permanent housing. According to the Austin American Statesman, in the past two years, the city purchased four hotels or motels to convert into housing at a combined cost of about $33 million and backed out of plans to buy another one. It also pulled the plug on buying a building in South Austin to turn into a shelter. It rejected calls to open sanctioned campsites, believing them to be, inex to, believing them to be expensive and difficult to maintain. An effort led by the Austin Chamber of Commerce to acquire and operate a 300-bed tent shelter fizzled when the nonprofit it helped create raised just $1.4 million of a $14 million two-year goal. Moreover, the city went a full year with an interim replacement before hiring a lead official tasked with directing the city's homelessness response. Over the last two years, over the last 10 years, we've never had a single plan everyone could agree to, Mayor Steve Adler said. So in other words, the city all but created the conditions for a voter backlash. By decriminalizing camping, but then only making half-hearted attempts to actually house people, let alone guarantee them medical treatment, financial assistance, and jobs, city officials effectively said to the public, it's on you now to make peace with Austin's homelessness crisis. Unsurprisingly, the situation created a lot of ambivalence among many voters. Take a look at this interview from Vice with two Austin residents in the lead-up to the election. Lifting the ban was not a solution, but putting the ban back in place isn't a solution either. I don't think either one of them are solutions. So what is the solution? Well, <laughs> a lot of money in housing. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, most big cities are having these problems. What do you think is going to happen with the vote? I don't know, because I, I mean, if you talk to Donnie's friends, you know, they're going to all vote against it. Most of my friends that I know, um, and even some fairly really it, liberal it's, friends, it's gonna are, are going to you know, vote to reinstate the ban. I think I'm going to vote against it, just so I have, but I hope there's a lot of people that vote for it. And that's weird to say. Like, it troubles me that I just said that. Because you want to feel good about how you vote, but you want it to go away. It's messed up. I don't want them arrested. I don't want them put in a van and driven to another neighborhood, because then that neighborhood's just got a problem. That's not the answer. Do you think if you had seen this issue happening in another city and it wasn't happening in your neighborhood, you would feel differently? Once you're in the middle of it, you change your mind of how you approach this situation. But as your safety declines, so does your compassion. Every, every time I have to pick up human shit, my liberalness just got lowered one, but one more notch. So the point here is this, though, of course, you can find plenty of right-wingers wherever you go, 
I have a hunch that the majority of Austin residents are not heartless ideologues who want to cruelly punish the homeless for simply existing. This is, after all, a city that voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries twice, aka the presidential candidate that proposed a national housing for all plan with $32 billion earmarked to end homelessness. Rather, the passage of Proposition B in Austin was the result of city leadership neglecting its obligation to guarantee its residents the basic provisions of a decent life, housing, jobs, and an adequate social safety net, as I said before, but also public safety, clean streets, and green space. As a result, enough of the better off ultimately voted in their own interests rather than continue a dysfunctional status quo. The unfortunate outcome is that Austin's homeless will once more face criminal punishment for being homeless. I think this is an important case study because there are several other liberal cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York that are currently grappling with their own homelessness crises and or spikes in violent crime. In California, where, of course, Gavin, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall election, homelessness has emerged as one of voters' biggest concerns. On the other coast, the topic of crime continues to dominate local elections. As Bloomberg News reported on the New York mayoral race, an increase in hate crimes, subway assaults, and shootings have become central to the race. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and former presidential contender Andrew Yang called for more police officers on city streets and transit systems, while civil rights lawyer Maya Wiley and former educator Diane Morales advocated for redirecting funds from the force. Former City Sanitation Commissioner Catherine Garcia said she would focus on gun buybacks and stopping the flow of firearms into New York. In other words, though some U.S. cities could very well avoid a law and order backlash in the coming months, others might not be so lucky. So, Anna, Jen. you know, <laughs> I know that you're based in Los Angeles, which, of course, is one of the cities that, you know, I name checked at the end. I know that there is a kind of big homeless crisis right now that's only gotten worse during the pandemic. Um, so just kind of reporting from the ground there, like, what are you seeing and what are your thoughts on what's going on and how it might affect uh, electoral politics in the future? I have to say, listening to your decode was really cathartic because in in Los Angeles, in California overall, like there's just a very similar trend of, um, you know, essentially what we did in, in California is the same thing that Austin did. They uh, lifted a ban on outdoor camping during the coronavirus pandemic. We see this explosion of, um, you know, encampments, uh, especially in Los Angeles everywhere. I mean, you can you can't find um, a freeway bridge that doesn't have a giant homeless encampment under it. Um, you're right in mentioning the crime and uh, also the public drug use. Uh, there, There is human excrement on the sidewalks. I one time was walking my dog and there was a homeless man literally like on a, a main street um, squatting and, and doing his business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... And so these are actually very legitimate concerns. And mm-hmm. what we're noticing with um, liberal policy is this situation where they set people up for failure, mm-hmm. right? So yep. we're not going to do anything in in terms of providing permanent, stable housing, but we are going to lift a ban on camping. And then it gets to a point where pe- well, like well-intentioned people who actually want to do the right thing 
get so tired of the crime, they get so tired of the squalor and all of that stuff that they end up moving to the right on the issue. And that's what we want to prevent. Right. right. I think what you and Paul Prescott did in the Jacobin episode on crime was so important. And it was because what you guys did was focus on this specifically when it comes to crime. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the left doesn't have a, a real solution, a robust solution, an alternative to tough on crime policy, we're very quickly going to go back to uh, the policies of the 1990s mm-hmm. that were just meant to punish people, had no interest in rehabilitation, no interest in treatment. We're seeing that now. In California, uh, we started to uh, release nonviolent offenders from the prison system. But just releasing people from prison isn't Not even enough. half the equation. Right. right. It's literally the first step. Mm-hmm. What is the state providing to help people transfer or, or um, transition, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, to society. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've been imprisoned for years and you've just been let out, if you don't have a support system, if the government doesn't have the proper social safety net in place, you're just being set up to fail. Exactly. And we're certain, yeah. So I, I love your segment. It's so important. Yeah. I mean, I just want to reiterate again, like we should be clear. It is the state's obligation to provide these services for people. It's the state's obligation or it should be the state's obligation to provide housing, to provide jobs, to provide a decent social safety net to, you know, as you were saying, reintegrate people who have been in the criminal justice system back into society. And I think when the state only goes halfway or, you know, just takes the first step, as you said, um, it really does create a situation where not just that uh, the people who are are homeless or, you know, released from prison are set up to fail, but it also ends up inadvertently, as we've seen in Austin, pitting them against Uh, You know, people who are a little bit better off, who understandably are worried about, you know, crime, uh, who are worried about cleanliness. Um, And I just want to say, you know, for the record, um, when it comes to homeless, violent crime, like we know that the vast majority of victims of crimes committed by homeless people are other homeless people. So, you know, I want to be clear that there's no like wave of like, you know, homeless people like attacking like good, like taxpaying citizens or anything like that. But the point here is that if there's a perception that things are not safe, if there's a perception that people, you know, don't feel comfortable around these homeless encampments, um, I think that does translate into a voter backlash. And I, I definitely I just want to add, you know, one last thing, which is that it is the state's obligation, I believe, as I said before. Um, it's not the responsibility of the community or like every citizen to fix the homelessness crisis, I'm sorry to say. And I think that, you know, progressives have a really hard task because, you know, we want to decriminalize homelessness, obviously. Like nobody should be punished for sitting under a bridge. Uh, obviously, fining people is just going to exacerbate the problem. Uh, people shouldn't be thrown in jail just for being homeless. That said, when I was looking into the Austin situation, I did notice that a lot of the, you know, uh, the messaging from the Vote No campaign, which did not want to repeal the homeless camping ban, was, um, again, you know, this is not a criticism of them. They were in a very tough position for the reasons I outlined, but a lot of the messaging was kind of like, well, it's rich assholes who don't like these homeless encampments. It's it's wealthy gentrifiers who come into Austin and they don't like the sight of tents, you know, or they just like think that the tents are an eyesore. And of course those people exist. We know that they do. We know that rich assholes are everywhere. 
But I think, you know, the larger point with Austin is that I don't think that that can explain the entirety of the voter backlash to the to the homeless camping. And I also think, you know, if we're serious about trying to forge a coalition to not just, you know, end homelessness, but also to strike down criminalization of homelessness, I don't think I don't think it goes very far or I wonder how far it goes to just say oh, it's rich assholes who don't like this, or it's rich assholes who are behind this initiative. I mean, honestly, that messaging does the work of the right wing on these types of issues because you're, you know, needlessly antagonizing people who you can persuade to be on your side um, to actually force the state to take responsibility and build the housing that's necessary, right? right. So um, it, I think messaging is so important on this issue. And, and what it does is it essentially minimizes the genuine and sincere concerns that people have. Everyone wants to be able to enjoy public spaces. Right. They want to be able to enjoy um, parks. Like, and, and if they're unable to do that, it's very easy for their mentality to shift toward wanting to provide shelter for people to wanting to demonize people and, and see them as the problem. Mm -hmm. and, and just one other quick thing. I'm, thank you for that clarification regarding homelessness and crime. I think it's an important one. And in California, for instance, you know, we have a similar situation with progressive activists using similar messaging. And one thing that we've been noticing is there have been small fires throughout mm -hmm. LA County, like just incessantly. There's several of them every single day. And it's because of, you know, one homeless person feeling that they've been wronged by another homeless person. They'll literally set their tents on fire. Mm -hmm. And we're living in California with an insanely dry climate. We're entering, you know, wildfire season. It, I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. People are frustrated. People are angry. And just like uh, the point that you guys were making with uh, the left needing a real robust solution, an alternative to the issue with crime, we need the same when it comes to housing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I love this. I think it's an important topic. And, you know, I'm glad that we're we're tackling homelessness, um, you know, on the show today. It's one of the topics I care the most about. Yeah, our, our two decodes were kind of kind of in sync. Uh, this was not pre-planned, by the way. It just sort of happened. But yeah, yeah it's obviously on our minds. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. And then just one final thing I'll mention. Um, I'm going to retweet myself mostly because I want to reshare this uh, Washington Post piece. It's an opinion piece that I think did a really great job in discussing the neoliberal failure on this topic. Yeah. Um, and my favorite line from it is, it's a Frankenstein's monster created by mating civil libertarianism with austerity. And it's just, it's so true. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect way of putting yeah. it. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, our guest is here with us. I want to bring him in. Uh, joining us now is Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is a Guardian U.S. columnist, um, and he is the author most recently of The People uh, Know a Brief History of Antipopulism. And uh, by the way, he uh, tackled the Wuhan lab leak story in a recent column for The Guardian titled, If the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis is true, expect a political earthquake. Thomas Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and it's my pleasure to be here. I was just looking at that picture of me on The Guardian. I was like, who is that handsome guy with that, that beautiful guy? <laughs> I mean, that's me in a different, like era, you know, not just a different decade. That's like a different century. <laughs> It's a nice picture.
picture. It's a nice picture. But sometimes you got to hit up the publications you're working at. And maybe if you want an update, get an updated photo. Uh, but Thomas, uh, this this story, I, your, your piece, your opinion piece in The Guardian, um, I think is an important one because... You know, first, let's let's be um, upfront about, I think, an important fact here, which is we still do not know the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. So Correct. the reason why this is a big story is because the Biden administration has tapped the State Department to uh, consider investigating the possibility of a lab leak. So that's all we know so far. Um, well, we, we actually, you, we know we know a lot more than that, but we don't know. There's no definitive answer mm-hmm. like what what actually caused the the. Uh, the the COVID pandemic, and it needs to be investigated. Obviously, there has to be accountability um, because we have to make sure something like this never happens again. You know, this is this is the second global um, disaster. I used to always say when I, I would come on on this show and on on every other show, what I would say that the the great sort of defining event of our lifetimes is uh, the the financial crisis. You know, two thousand eight and two thousand and nine, and God damn, this is worse. We've it's something even worse. And if it turns out to be something that it wasn't just a natural event, you know, a, a, a new virus jumping from species to species, but in fact was was sort of assisted on its way by um, you know uh, uh, humans and then escaped from a lab or something like that. This is this this has uh, uh, this is going to be so much bigger and worse than the financial crisis was. Your article sort of began uh, by overviewing the findings from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which was sort of the big report that kind of uh, got this conversation sort of swirling around. Can you kind of go over those findings? Um, because as Anna was saying, you know, the, the lab leak theory, it's still improbable, right? But we have more questions now. So so what did they find? Yes, it is. It, it, well, ordinarily, that's that would never be the, the answer, you know, uh, because uh, uh, we know where, you know, uh, viruses come from, where the, you know, the seasonal flu. Flu every year, it's slightly different. It jumps from uh, animals to humans. This is where almost all diseases come from, uh, you know, when there's a, a new disease. Now, I, I should just say two things before we get into this. First of all, I'm not an expert on that. What I do is history, you know, that is specifically the history of ideas. And I am absolutely this. This is, a, a, you know, in the sort of long um what would you say, the, the long history of how Americans uh, uh, deal with uh, experts. Uh, this is a, this is an important sort of chapter in that history. But no, I'm not a I'm not a, a biologist, a virologist, or anything like that. But in the social history of expertise, this is really fascinating. The other thing is, I want to point out, if we had had this conversation a month and a half ago, you wouldn't be allowed to put it on YouTube. <laughs> and if you tried to tweet about it, your tweet would be deleted by the, an, an algorithm that knew that any talk like this was conspiracy theory. And that is a uh, uh, that is what there are so many angles to this story that make it fascinating. And one of them is that this, that, that uh, conversations like this were actually censored not a very long time ago. And that's just, that is the world that we're living in now. You know, good old free speech America has become a place where certain ideas cannot be um, discussed, contemplated over social media. You know, you can still talk about them on the phone, I guess, <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but, but not over social media. And that's, that is bizarre by itself. And then there's also the, of course, the, um, 
the traditional mass media, the traditional sort of legacy news media, which was also every time something like this came up, they would label it, you know, false. The fact checkers had gone over this and determined that it was untrue, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, just for, you know, full disclosure, I believed all that stuff. Uh, I actually um, two months ago scolded a member of my family, you know, who's a Fox News viewer, you know, Trump supporter. And I, and I scolded him for, for, for believing this crap. I was like, come on, you know, that's, you know, that's a conspiracy theory and I'll be damned. Now it looks like there, there might be some uh, truth to it. And this, like I said, yes, a moral earthquake is on the way if this, if this turns out to be true, but yeah, it, for me, it began with, um, you know, I never took this seriously. Um, didn't really look into it. I uh, uh, like like most people. I outsource what I know about the world to the Washington Post, the New York Times, mm-hmm. you know, and I believe what they said about this stuff. And then I happened to read that story in Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, not a right wing publication, by the way. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it it is a a shocking story of of exactly how plausible. Um, the uh, the lab leak hypothesis is uh, in the absence of and I should I should point out uh, before we get going on this that uh, uh, like I said most most of the times when there's a new disease it sweeps over the world it it has leapt from animals to humans and in this case they can't find any evidence of that you know there's a lot of speculation about it but they haven't been able to find uh, any trace of that yet the story is so difficult to navigate because of, I think, what the main theme of your piece is, uh, this lack of trust in institutions. So, you know, you write, I want to read um, an excerpt because this is this is certainly how I felt. It made perfect sense to us that Donald Trump, a politician we despised, could not grasp the situation that he suggested people inject bleach uh, and that he was personally responsible for more than one super spreading event. Reality itself punished leaders like him who refused to bow to ex expertise. So uh, part of the reason why I just dismissed that theory from the get-go is because of the person it was yes, coming from. Yes, of course. And, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, this guy's this guy's a nincompoop, you know. Anything he says and 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 all, and a bigot. I mean, let's let's be honest about this. He he is a bigot and he was using this uh this language in a in a bigoted way and and so i i immediately distrusted it and and said you know this this cannot be true because this this moron okay that's a mean thing to say because this guy you know who i who i can't stand and who i think is a fool is um is it has embraced it now there is a sense in which the whole COVID pandemic just fits so neatly into this kind of liberal uh, worldview. You know what I'm talking about here? Those yard signs that uh, I've been on this show making fun of them before. The yard signs that people have in this safety. house. Like, yes, in the, yeah. But there's another one that you often see. They uh, in this house it says like you know science is real or something like that. And there's another one that you often see uh, in your sort of affluent white collar neighborhoods. It says respect science. And then there's this whole. Um, uh, what would you say discourse of the last five years that uh, that something terrible has happened in America and that terrible thing is that we've lost faith in experts and and uh, but that is not the experts fault that's the fault of the people and it's a sort of a mass uh, you know uh, 
psychopathology that we, the experts, have to try to understand and unravel. And so here comes COVID, and it forced us to respect science, and it put scientists and you know public health officials in charge of of, of our society, and they you know closed businesses, and they, I mean, we've you know we went through a year of of, of you know on and off lockdowns, uh, mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seemed it was too pat. You know, as with all of these um, uh, sort of uh, 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 media, these grand media mistakes of the last couple of years, they're always they always seem to be driven by these very pat little priors. I'm thinking of Russiagate here, where you had you know this enormous media uh, uh, you know uh, insistence that uh, uh, that that Trump had colluded with the Russians. Look, I don't like Trump. I didn't vote for Trump. But what these people were looking for was a reason why their hero, Hillary Clinton, why she lost. They couldn't imagine it otherwise. And so they had to invent this whole uh, this whole sort of, you know, um, phantom uh, of Russian cheating. And uh, that, the same with this. OK, so these things, they always fit these very pat little philosophies. And then upon investigation, they turn out to be true. I don't know how you come back from this one, though. If, if they get Russiagate wrong and then they get this wrong, this is just too much. This is too much. We're talking about the biggest catastrophe, the biggest global catastrophe in our lives. I mean, this is well, the biggest so one since like World War II, you know. So on the subject of priors, I have a follow up question, which is. Obviously, the lab leak theory, you know, kind of gained traction among the right in the beginning, uh, or it was sort of exclusively the domain of what you might call the populist right, right? Or like the kind of Trump crowd. Yeah, we so, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it that, but yeah, you wouldn't go call ahead. It. I know you wouldn't. I know, what you, I know mean. you wouldn't. Okay. But, you know, it, you know among, among kind of the right wing or among like, you know, the sort of Trump circle or like the Trump media types, this was where the theory really began gaining traction. And I'm wondering yeah. why you think why you think that was because you know i think that the standard liberal explanation is like oh well it was just racism right it was just a racist conspiracy theory but here's the thing we have seen that even if you believe that covid was a, a natural phenomenon you know and not created in a lab um it's still possible to be plenty racist about that fact, right? So yes, I think, of course, of course like, I'm sure there was anti-China sentiment. There was racism. Like, I don't doubt that, but I don't think it completely explains why this theory blew up on the right. And I'm wondering if you have any insight to that. Um, they, they, they do love conspiracies. Um, and they, <laughs> it's true. They, you know, be, conspiracies simplify. Conspiracies make the world seem like good and evil. Uh, you know, and, and, and so there's, the, you know, they're very, very attractive. Fox News deals in conspiracies. Um, you know, I've seen, as I've said before, members of my family go down that Fox News rabbit hole and it sort of takes over the way they think about the world. And, uh, and and it's it, it, look that that sort of thing has always been very attractive to a certain kind of person. Um, the world is very simple. What's funny is that our side also believed things that were that you know ludicrously oversimplified, you know, very and, and and very flattering to our heroes. And I'm just here to tell you that reality is always much more complicated than that. And it, it, blind faith in expertise is as dumb as blind faith in Fox News. I don't know. That's yeah, probably not know, the I, answer I, you were I, looking for, Jen, but <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, part of the problem was just how politicized COVID yeah. was from the beginning. I mean, it was pretty yeah. clear from the jump that Donald Trump was uh, trying to 
hide the fact that coronavirus was happening. Um, so oh, yeah, he, that, he bungled again, it completely. It He's, this is nothing that I've said. Nothing that I've said is to is to imply that I think he should be let off the hook. Right. <laughs> this guy. This no, guy I know was that. Dis- I know it that. was a, a disastrous presidency. On the other hand, if it hadn't been for that. He, he probably would have been reelected. You know, this this really did. Mm-hmm. Um, this this was this is what uh, sank the sank the no crashed. The, I'm mixing metaphors here. The Trump train. What happens to trains? They crash. Right. This is what, <laughs> this is what cra- derailed the Trump train was uh, was covid and his incredibly poor uh, his awful response to it. You know, the, well, anyhow, we don't need to go into Trump here and his and his his failures. We all know what they are. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But but the point that I was trying to get at was, you know, you don't know who to trust, right? So in lieu of a trustworthy executive branch or trustworthy yep. government, um, you find yourself looking for answers. And I think a lot of Americans were like, well, I mean, exactly. let's trust the scientists. They yep. have the empirical data. But even in the science community, the American people, uh, you know, had to deal with a lie early on in regard to the use of masks. So can yes. you talk there's about that how one, but, that There's that one, but there's something much worse going on here, which is um, – and, and look, I – I totally get what you're saying because I'm that person too. You know, who, who do you believe when you want to understand reality? And especially when you can't verify it yourself, you're not an expert. Uh, and you, of course you trust, uh, you know, the media and you trust uh, scientific expertise. The, um, what was the point I was going to make? Um, darn it. I had it all worked out in my mind on it. And then, you know, the government, <laughs> you know, they, they shielded us from information. Okay, there's, there's to the, know. the, the yeah. important yeah. thing to understand here about this is that if, if this turns out to be true, you are talking about, you know, just absolutely demolishing these institutions that people had faith in absolutely destroying them from the media to Facebook to the, uh, you know, certain elements of the scientific community. And by the way, I'm not the first one to point this out. This is in the, uh, in the sort of um, the more uh, uh, scientific literature about this too, that if this turns out to be true, this is going to destroy the edifice of science for uh, generations to come. Another thing is that there are huge conflicts of interest all over this issue. Uh, People that were supposed to be supervising people that were supposed to be in charge Turned out they weren't doing their job for various reasons, usually because of conflicts of interest. Uh, the, there was a uh, sort of notorious now a letter signed by a whole bunch of virologists in the Lancet magazine way back when this thing got got going, and it now looks like that was uh, uh, that was uh, uh, put together by someone who would ha- have been personally uh, very embarrassed if the lab leak hypothesis turned out to be true. And so they he he you know organized this this uh, this letter where they called it a conspiracy theory, and that's really where that whole narrative began. And uh, in this sense, it's very similar to the financial crisis and to other. Uh, sort of disastrous episodes before that. There's whenever you're talking about the professional uh, elite uh, and what brings them down. There's two important things. One is conflicts of interest, and the other is groupthink. And you you see both of these uh, in, in high relief in this story. You know the uh, the groupthink where everybody agrees, they all come together. There's this there's this enormous consensus. The consensus then and then it, it, it succeeds in stamping out dissent. That's what just happened. And that very same thing happened with the financial crisis. And then you also had the um, the conflicts of interest all through the financial crisis, what the people that were supposed to be. Again, the financial crisis is my sort of uh, ultimate point of reference. But you think of all the people that were supposed to be regulating and supposed to be supervising and supposed to be you know, keeping um, this stuff in check and all of them 
had been corrupted or bought off or, uh, or, or conflicted in some way. This goes back. I, I also think of the Enron scandal when remember they had succeeded in corrupting their accountant in this, in this, in this incredible way so that the accountant would just let Enron do whatever the hell they wanted. You know, there's these conflicts of interest uh, just throughout this system. And when, and then the liberals say, no, 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 you just have to bow down to expertise. Right. That's the answer. It's just a very short. It's just the simplest thing in the world. You just have to bow down to expertise. Well, it's the, the world is slightly more complicated than that. You know, expertise is not the answer to everything, even though we want to think that because we're members of the white collar class and we all went to college and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that we know that our professors were so great and we want to trust them. This is look, I am here to tell you if this turns out to be true. We are at the very beginnings of a kind of enormous disillusionment with everything that I've just described, uh, the professional elite, uh, expertise, science, uh, I mean, social media, these guys, if this turns out to be true and they were censoring it, these people need to, they need to be put out of business like tomorrow. I mean, this is disastrous, you know, and uh, what can you say about the Washington Post or the New York Times? I mean, this is inexcusable. Mm -hmm. I so I, you know, completely agree that if this happened to be proven true, it would be a complete crisis of legitimacy for these institutions. But at the same time, you know, as you pointed out in your piece, we have already seen so many I mean, the U.S. has a very rich history, unfortunately, of elite of abuses, of disastrous, yeah. of disastrous, of elite abuses and cover ups. Um, and, you know, not just Enron and the financial crash, as you were saying, although obviously those are some recent examples. But you could even say going back to the 60s and 70s, you got the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers, yeah. COINTELPRO. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of when you start to see the, public trust in the government and, and the media and other institutions eroding. So and you're exactly all, right, Jen. And and. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I was just going to ask, in light of all of that, you know, like my question is, is is this just another drop in the bucket or what about this makes it a new turning point in your opinion? It's the size of it. It's this is I mean, this is catastrophic. There's th- three million people have died worldwide. And the uh, the economy of the world was this is much more disruptive than the financial crisis was. By the way, going back to Vietnam, you're exactly right. Th- to this day, the best book on the subject of elite failure that I'm, that I've that I've now spent years writing about. Uh, I haven't even come close to it. It's a book called The Best and the Brightest. And it's basically about how the political science community dreamed up the Vietnam War. And it's it is absolutely uh, this crushing book, uh, but it 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 describes you know it anticipates how the uh, how the public would uh, was was turning against institutions in the way that you describe. Well, I would say this one is is different because it's much bigger. Um, you know, this is the worst thing that's happened uh, in any of our lifetimes. Uh, I mean, unless you. Can, unless you can remember World War II, this is or the Great Depression. This is this is it. This is the worst, and there has to be accountability because one of the things, uh, one of the details of this, a detail that I predict will soon be on everybody's lips if it turns out to be true, is the uh, the research in question. Uh, is called gain of function research, where you take a virus uh, from the animal world or from the human, you know, whatever. You take a virus and you make it more virulent. You make it more deadly. And this is considered to be legitimate uh, research. But it's not just something that that they, you know, they didn't invent this in Wuhan. This is being done in America. This is being done in Europe. This is being done all over the place. And lab leaks are also, again, this is not something specific to uh, a, a singular lab in Wuhan, China. Lab leaks happen 
all the time. They happen in this. They happen with mathematical regularity, and uh, uh, people die from lab leaks all the time. People who are you know fooling around with bubonic plague or something like that in the in the lab, and and oh, the mouse got got loose or something. It happens all all the time, and so there. Uh, when we do finally decide to um, uh, have some accountability at the end of this, all of these things are going to be uh, examined uh, all over again. I mean, there there has to be accountability for this. This cannot be permitted to happen again. Uh, but then, as you said, uh, there's been a, you know, a long series of these. And so we have some experience seeing how uh, how people react. And there is, you know... Uh, reason to believe that that uh, that they will explain it away. I think of the financial crisis all the time, which was you know so absolutely wrenching and destructive for so many people, and the uh, nothing ever happened to those guys. You know the the Wall Street bankers they didn't even lose their jobs. They're, this is the same crew. They're still there. You know, not only did they mm-hmm. get bailed out, they didn't even get fired. Nothing even nothing ever happened to them. We had a, we we sort of re-regulated them. Right. Dodd Frank. But that didn't you know, the, the Trump people came in and just trashed that immediately. So, that you know, there, there you go. And you remember the things that they used to say? They would say, oh, man, this was a perfect storm. There's no way anybody could have seen this coming. You can't hold us. A, you can't hold us responsible for this. No one could have seen it. Right. What was their phrase? Who could have known? Do you remember? I'm, I'm older mm-hmm. than you guys. Anyhow, this was a big deal like 12 years ago. Who could have known? It was a perfect storm. And, and they, they, they did indeed. Uh, they were not held accountable. Accountability never right. happened to them. I mean, lots of ordinary people had their savings ruined, not just in this country, but all over the world. I always think of those retirees in Dusseldorf where they were investing in these Wall Street, these AAA Wall Street securities that turned out to be worth nothing. You know, all these retirees, they lost everything. Uh, all over the world, yeah. people had their economies ruined. Some countries have still not come out of it properly, you know. And, uh, and no, there was never any accountability for those guys. And, and yeah, they were uh, rewarded. Yeah, they were rewarded. They're doing. I mean, they're doing the, great. The, like, they're doing great. They are. They they bought up all the foreclosed homes. They manipulate the housing market. Uh, they became far more wealthy um, following that economic collapse. Uh, they yeah. were rewarded. You remember, there so was exactly the this. Distrust uh, it's, in our it's, institutions mm-hmm. makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. There you go. And yeah. this is okay. This is so. This is the message of everything that I write for. Uh, you know, for the Democrats and for liberals. It's like this makes sense. Okay, it's being expressed in the in in a horribly wrong way, you know. But it was easy to see Trump coming. It's not a perfect storm. It's not a who could have known. It was easy to see this sort of thing coming. And the the thing is that you, the Democratic Party, the traditional party of the left in this country, such as it is, and I know it's like it's not much of a left, right? But you, as the traditional party of the left, are the ones that are supposed to be out in front of this. When people don't trust institutions, you don't go and say, oh, well, there's something wrong with you for mistrusting institutions and experts. No, there's a really good reason for that. And you, the party of the left, should be out leading that, uh, you know, that attack on institutions and on expertise. But no, we're, our, our politics are completely the other way around in this country. And I don't see where this ends. You know, this is going to go on and on and on. Uh, This is, I mean, among other things, it's going to give, I mean, there's many other consequences. I'm just talking about the sort of intellectual ones that I can see on the horizon. Um, It it will, it will give, uh, you know, it will breathe new life into the right wing, et cetera, et cetera. I think what is going to happen because this is so um, damning for so many institutions 
and so enormously consequential. And by the way, the blame doesn't you can't just say it all it all goes on China. uh, We're done. That's not going to work. There's going to be lots of blame to go around. Like I said, uh, 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 for example, the uh, the social media companies, they, you know, all of them should be gone tomorrow after this kind of after this kind of performance. And um, uh, but there's going to be tons. (laughs) <laughs> there's going to be tons of blame to go around. And that's why I think they'll probably find that, you know, that, oh man, you know, we don't really know. Uh, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. Let's just, let's just forget about the whole thing. I think that's probably what will happen. There never will be a, a proper inquiry or a proper, you know, uh, accountability for this. It's Can just too, it's bit- too devastating. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of social media? Because I thought that was a really interesting piece of your article and you touched on it already a little. But the funny thing about social media is that it was kind of um, uh, sold to the public as like, this is a more democratic type of media. Right. Um, But but how did that how did that play out here? I often uh, you know, I wrote a book years ago uh, in the year. 2000 about uh, about the sort of cyber utopianism you know the the new economy you know this is before social media but it was the same kind of spirit this idea that we had completely erased the uh, barriers between people (laughs) high and low we had collapsed the difference between high and low every hierarchy was down now and you know etc etc it was ridiculous and i was uh, in 2015 I went to a, a Clinton Foundation presentation in New York City that I, I write about in Listen Liberal. And uh, uh, at it, they were – it was Hillary Clinton herself made a presentation and um, – um, oh, what's Bill Gates' wife? What is her name? Um, Melinda Gates Melinda. was there. She made, yeah, she made a presentation and, and various other uh, uh, figures like that. But one of, the, one of the people who made a presentation, it was all about like uh, social media, how, how it was empowering the lowly and the weak all over the world. <laughs> You know, it's just like this insanely optimistic, uh, you know, uh, uh, shout out to social media and what a great, you know, anti-hierarchical force it was, how subversive it was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now, uh, you know, liberals scream and cry for social media to shut down their opponents. This is one of the the weirdest, you know, I'm, I'm 55 years old. I can remember when liberals were the were the free speech zealots, right? When the whole idea was mm-hmm. to protect the speech, even of, for God's sakes, Nazis, like right? comedians, was- like comedians <laughs> saying insane yeah. things. I mean, I remember yeah. 2007 when all of these stories about right wingers wanting to censor comedians were being published. <laughs> yeah, what, now what it's attracted us. me now to it's, the now left it's our guys was, that want to do that, you know, and they insane. want to. Yeah, they 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 were they were dem- they had these a series of hearings uh, where they would have uh, Zuckerberg and whoever's in charge of, of uh, Google and whoever's in charge of Twitter and et cetera. They'd have these people. Uh, they'd bring them to Washington and to the Democrats would pressure them to crack down on their political enemies. By the way, this is not me saying this. There has been, you know, this, this a whole lot of literature about this. The, the, there is the, the, the uh, Democratic Party, more or less officially, is demanding that Silicon Valley censor political speech by their mm-hmm. opponents. It, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Sometimes I feel like I'm the last. I'm the last, like 1970s liberal left. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the last one that thinks this is strange, but they were also doing it on COVID. They were demanding that the social media companies get tough with um, people spreading falsehoods about COVID. And this was one of them, the the lab leak hypothesis. This is, there's, like I say, there's more than enough embarrassment to go around here. There are so many people are going to look stupid if this turns out to be true. So I think you, you guys see where this is going. 
it can't turn yeah, out I to mean, be true. But, it can't. But, but you know, the thing that also, like, I, I'm curious what you think about this, because I agree with you in that if the lab leak uh, theory ends up being proven true, um, and by the way, we may never know. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's that potential yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. we probably, um, ne- we probably I, the, never will. They, yeah. Yeah. There have been, you know, as was already mentioned in this interview, like decades and decades of our institutions failing us. I remember, you know, looking into why it is that uh, the people of Denmark uh, are able to accomplish um, these wonderful uh, policies where they decommodify, um, you know, parts of their, 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 you know, private industry, like healthcare and all of that. Like, why can't we do that here in the United States? And one of the main factors is that, Americans don't trust their government. They don't trust yeah. that their government can actually carry out these services and do it efficiently, do it well. So this yeah. problem in in a lack of faith and trust in these institutions was already an issue, and oh, it'll only be exacerbated if. Yeah. Um, so how does how does the left? How do you deal mitigate with that? that? That's a really good. Yeah, question, because, because we've, we're already that... in a giant hole. You know, we're know. already it, in this giant hole as a result. That's such a good question. I mean, can we go for another hour here? <laughs> I think we might because need you've to. got you've got you've got one of the two political parties in this country that is that that is basically uh, dedicated to destroying government as an institution and proving that it can't do the job and proving that it can't work. Uh, I mean, they will do things like, um, uh, you know. Uh, they'll they'll deliberately throw a monkey wrench into uh, uh, some federal bureaucracy, and then they'll say, "See, government." Then they'll point to that mm-hmm. very same bureaucracy and say, "See, government can't work." Classic example being the people who were supposed to oversee the banking industry during the financial crisis, and the, and it was you know it was George W. Bush put hacks and cronies in charge. People didn't know what they were doing. Uh, you know, there's many examples of this, but then they, you know, then they come back a couple of years later and say, government can't do anything right. They let these guys get away with this stuff. And it's like, well, that was you, you, you did that. Uh, Republicans. This is, I, I, uh, I hate to tell you, I once wrote a book about this too. It was called the wrecking crew. And it's about a, a history of this kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, this conservative sort of sabotage of federal institutions. And it's no joke. I mean, the Reagan administration did this uh, in all sorts of really dramatic ways. Well, the Nixon people sort of pioneered it, but uh, George W. Bush took it to this kind of um, uh, incredible, you know, made it an art form. Like they turned the Department of Labor into the Department of Management, <laughs> basically. You know, I mean, they, they would flip entire federal bureaucracies on their head, you know, run them in reverse. They were, uh, it, it's, it's incredible what they've done. And then they say, well, you know, the government can't, can't help you. Well, two things about this. First of all, uh, in America, it's it's kind of a shame that this is what our political debates come down to, that, you know, government helping you versus uh, government not being able to help you. And that's a kind of legacy of the New Deal, um, which, by the way, I'm a, you know, the, the New Deal worked really well for about 40 or 50 years. And they eventually managed to bring everybody in or they were trying to bring everybody in. And the Republicans uh uh, gave up on opposing it. You know, you have a, a presidents like Eisenhower who who did not repeal Social Security and and uh, went went along with it, and and then but then beginning in the 1970s, the Republicans figure out, wait a minute, you know, we can undermine this thing and make our case in, in that way, and they did, and they and they've been they've been very effective on that in that in that sense. But I want to remind you that there are other ways to achieve uh, the kind of uh, uh, things that they have in Denmark. 
uh, that don't require, you know, working through the state and having this state that's 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 perfectly pristine. And the main one would be um, labor, you know, organizing workers uh, independently. And, and uh, you can achieve a, 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 you know, a large degree of uh, of. Uh, economic equality. Uh, sorry, somebody's playing the stereo in the other room. I know you guys can't hear it, but it's very distracting. Uh, there, but there's, uh, look, the, 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 it's, it's, a, uh, it's an incredible dilemma. It's not an easy one to resolve. But the first thing that you have to do is you have to be, uh, you have to speak bluntly about it. You know, uh, you have to, you have to confront what's been happening. You have to tell the people about it. And this is the Democrats have been, and liberals in this country are extremely reluctant to do that. I mean, their faith in expertise, one of the pitfalls of this is that they have they have lost their faith in ordinary people. Uh, this is what I mean by anti-populism, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they have lost their faith in the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of old time, old time uh, left wing faith that you could explain things to ordinary people. They would get it. The people were your ally. That's what being on the left was about. It's about ordinary uh, Americans, you know, and but our, your modern day liberals don't don't believe believe that they're like you know put the power in the hands of the experts and bow down to them you know put the yard saying you know says respect science and you're done done and done that's it that's all you have to do and i'm here to tell you that's 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 not a, that's not a great great way to run a left one I quick comment much, on guys. Denmark. I'm so sorry. No, no this is great. <laughs> uh, but one quick comment on Denmark, uh, which is on my mind, because uh, earlier this week on the Jacobin Channel, we had a big episode on social democracy. Uh, and and you know, when you look at the Nordic states, one of the reasons why their levels of trust in the government and other institutions is so high is basically because they have social democracy. They basically have institutions that work for them, that work for the people. Um, And that kind of creates this like righteous cycle, right? And we have the opposite here, unfortunately, where uh, as, you know, elites kind of come to dominate these institutions uh, and undermine them or completely dismantle them, working class people kind of check out of the political process because they know that they don't really have any influence. But then that kind of feeds back into the political process where you have only elites who are involved in politics and continuing to craft these sort of anti-working class policies that, again, just disenfranchise more people. Um, So, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, (laughs) there's not really a question there, I guess, but um, I- No, but that's exactly right. And I'm sorry, I don't like talking about this because it's, uh, you you start to realize the incredible fix that that we're in, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it is Mm -hmm. interesting about the the Scandinavian countries, they don't have political parties that are dedicated to sabotaging the state. They don't have that. Or if they do, those parties are are really, really, really small. But in America, you know, which is and it's not a coincidence. We've also this very, very violent uh, uh, labor history in this country where, you know, forming unions, which just seems like, you know, that's 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 just okay in other in other countries here was met with bullets, you know, Mm -hmm. armed guards. You know, it's the 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 uh, business elite in this country fought so has fought so much harder and, uh, uh, you know, and with so much more effectiveness than in any other country. We could talk about this again for hours, but uh, it's it, in some ways it's very depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So maybe I, I, we should okay, change so I do, the I, subject. I, yeah, well, I do, I, about, I, let's talk about the death of the newspaper or something happy right. like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I did remember my question for you, and I don't know if it's like that much less nihilistic, um, but I, I guess I wonder if, if the lab leak theory is somehow like – 
completely disproven, um, which, as yeah. you sort of alluded to earlier, would I, I, be, I would would be like the I breathe a sigh of relief if that happened. Exactly. It's, also exactly. Really, but, it's really scary if you think about it, Jen. This is that this happened once. If this mm-hmm. if this happened, and for the reasons that the various people that I that I quoted from and linked to in my article, for the reasons that they say it did, you know, that they were that mm-hmm. that, that that these people were in, involved were were doing gain of function research. Well, we know that's going on all over the place, and we know that mm-hmm. lab leaks happen, and we can almost predict mathematically that this will happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is that is really terrifying. Right. So okay. following now from back that, to what you were if, saying. Now back to your happy on what was your what was <laughs> Okay, so so let's say so let's say the lab leak theory is like completely disproven, like beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like I'm not sure how that will happen because, you know, as Anna was saying, like we we probably will never know. But let's say that like best case scenario, it is disproven. I guess my fear is like is it almost too late to put the genie back into the bottle at this point? Because it has become mm. such a partisan issue, right? And like to go back to what you were saying about Russiagate, that was disproven, but like Rachel Maddow still has her show. Like liberals just kind of yeah, I know. they I don't I don't know, like swept it under the rug, you know? Like there was no accountability, like you're saying. And yes, the scary right. thing about conspiracy, right, is like when it's quote disproven, that sometimes just makes adherence double down even more. I don't know. Uh, excellent point. And, uh, I, I wasn't gonna, you know, I, I, uh, look, I will be, I will be, uh, overjoyed if it is disproven and they find mm-hmm. the, uh, the way it'd be disproven is if they find the animal that from which it, you know, or the, whatever the species that it jumped from to, to humans, if they find that, then that, that will, that will effectively disprove it. Um, but short of that, I don't, yeah. anyhow, I would, I would be relieved if that if that happened for reasons that i just made clear that this is this is really 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 frightening if it's if it turns out to be true you know when i was a kid and they were there were all of those movies about accidental nuclear war but it never happened you know the safeguards pretty much worked um not perfectly but but pretty much it never happened well this just happened you know this is a this is a disaster on a uh, you know on on a similar kind of scale and it 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 happened and uh, that is absolutely terrifying. And if we don't have accountability after this, and you know, I don't know what to tell you about about modern civilization, <laughs> you know. But okay, um, where were you going with that? You said, uh, 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 Jen, help me out here. I've already forgotten what you asked me because my mind is already uh, racing off to a different <laughs> different subject. But you were yeah. saying uh, that, that just... uh, let's say, oh, will it will it will it make the conspiracy theorists shut up? And the answer is no. Of course, it it never it never will. But it'll make people like you and me. Um, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it, people true, who true. actually read things and think about things will will be um, will be relieved and comforted. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny that you say that because these conspiracy theories have a way of of explaining their own failures. So the Russiagate people basically they look at the journalism that has <laughs> that has uh, disproven them. And they're like, oh, th- those people are Russians. Those people are part of it, <laughs> you know. It's it's mm-hmm. McCarthyism, right? Whenever anybody would stand up to Joe McCarthy, he'd be like, "Well, they must be part of the communist conspiracy," you know. These things have a way of they always have a way of taking into account um, the people who disagree and uh, sort of working them into the conspiracy. So no, it won't. It'll never. You're right. It'll never go away. Can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> Well, everyone check out uh, Thomas Frank's piece in The Guardian. It's titled, If the Wuhan Lab Leak Hypothesis is True, Expect a Political Earthquake. 
Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for taking time to be here with us. And you've been incredibly generous with your time and we really appreciate it. What else am I going to do? You You know, we're here in lockdown and uh, (laughs) 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 yeah, it was my pleasure, guys. Thanks, Thomas. All right. Take care. Okay. Uh, that was, that was a great discussion. Um, and you know, it, it also think about why it is so difficult to be persuasive toward, let's say QAnon conspiracy theorists, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. they're not going to be persuaded by legacy media outlets, um, trying to provide evidence for why their theories are wrong, Mm -hmm. right? They're, they don't trust those institutions. They mm-hmm. don't trust those media outlets. And it's mm-hmm. it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I and mean, I, I don't – I really don't know what the solution is at this point because I don't see the behavior of, you know, the people employed in these institutions changing. Like I, I think they're going to keep doing what they're doing, keep brushing things under the rug mm-hmm. with the assumption that we'll all forget about it. But yeah. people remember, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I mean, as Thomas was saying, and actually Nando and I on the Jacobin Show earlier this week talked about this as well, like, the U.S. is riddled with such a, like, frightening history of actual, I mean, what we might call actual conspiracy theories, right? Like, on the show last week, we talked about the opioid crisis and how that's basically a real-life conspiracy theory where you have, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies engineering and manufacturing this crisis uh and then some of them turning around and being like now we're gonna patent the drug that treats opioid addiction and it's like uh like this doesn't sound that radically different from you know insert xyz like crazy conspiracy theory about the government or about big businesses kind of engineering engineering some sort of social crisis to like cover their asses or to make a profit so uh yeah it's a it's you know, it's it's a little depressing, like Thomas said. Um, I, I don't know that we have the answers here today. Um, but I think I think again, just to kind of underscore, you know, what's going on with the lab leak theory, um, it's it is really a crisis that was perpetuated and kind of uh made worse by liberal liberals, right? By the liberal media, by mainstream institutions, because the truth of the matter is right now we don't have evidence really, that there was a lab leak. It is very improbable. And yet, when you have all of these institutions, all of these elite institutions telling you, oh, you're wrong, like, there's no way, this is only a racist right-wing conspiracy. And then you have Mm -hmm. even just the slightest shred of evidence that it could be a possibility. That really throws the whole project, I guess, into question. Yeah, in fact, when the... Biden administration suggested, oh, maybe we do need to, uh, you know, investigate this. My first reaction to it was to distrust him (laughs) because of the country that's targeted in this investigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the warmongering rhetoric coming from both parties in regard to China. Exactly. I mean, we're already in the beginnings of like this Cold War with China. We're heavily arming other countries in that region. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so I was like, I don't know. Is this meant to drum up support for, you know, hostility toward China, war with China. Like, I don't know who to trust. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's just, it's a, it, it is a real problem. Right. You know, and, so, um, uh, I, 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 I don't, I can't remember if Thomas had mentioned weapons of mass destruction in the Iraq war, uh, on the show, but I know that he does in his article. And that's a classic example of a government kind of, uh, whipping up, uh, you know, fear or fear mongering in order to advance mm-hmm. some sort of foreign policy, uh, project. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a mess. 
Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. If I could, All right. If I could jump in, because I I have the answer, just, just so you guys know. <laughs> Kale uh, is Kale here does. to give the definitive scientific account of lab leak theory. Oh, no, no. The, the other issue of, like, intellectuals <laughs> and experts. Um, I, the lab leak, I, yeah, that's not, that's not me. That's, uh, we'll, we'll work that out over the next couple months. But yeah. um, Stay tuned. I mean, I think with the... Because I've been tr- like, I've been trying to answer this question that, uh, that you guys brought up and that Thomas uh, tried to answer as well. Um, and, and the issue of obviously, you know, like, what do we do with intellectuals and experts where like, I don't, I don't need, I don't want to, and I certainly shouldn't need to have to like learn how to do chemistry or become an engineer. Like we need those people. We need the people Mm -hmm. that can do these things because I can't do that. Like, I don't want to do it. And I really just probably can't actually do it. You don't want me to be your engineer. So, like, but obviously, you know, there's so there's so little trust in intellectuals and experts, and and I think ultimately it's a problem of institutions. It's the problem that these these people that have an, an important service to society end up in institutions that are cloistered in elite circles that are attached to uh, you know elite universities uh, and and research institutions and. Um, and they end up just serving the, the you know, the ends of, of either capital or they kind yeah. of self-justify their existence. They There's a great uh, Catalyst essay that just came out that we're actually going to be talking about uh, this upcoming week with um, Ben Fong and Melissa Naschek about how uh, NGOs and kind of non-governmental organizations, uh, non-profit organizations broadly over the last 40, 50 years have kind of moved into that place of uh, they provide... Um, they're like the water wings on capitalism. They like, they keep it, uh, you know, so it, in, it, there's the sense that like, there's a critique of, of the problems in society, that social problems are an issue, but they're structurally incapable of dealing with them. And so then they, you know, all of this like radical language ends up uh, being associated with like bolstering uh, elites and uh, in the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when you have people that want to do good, within these institutions, uh, they're structurally unable to because of the funding structure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it, and then it just becomes like, you know, the whole, like all, you know, coastal elites are liberals, are socialists, are the left. It's all just one big mushy thing. And, and I think the, the socialist answer has to be that, no, we should have experts and intellectuals that are actually genuinely rooted within working class uh, communities and institutions, those that serve the interests, the political interests of working people. Um, and the only way you can do that is through a political fight. And so I think right. that's where like liberals mm-hmm. can't ever deal with this problem because they don't want science to be political. They want to say, no, this is this is just some airy thing that lives above the realm of politics, which is dirty and bad. And uh, that, you know, the, the truth is just we can we can all agree that there's like something called the objective truth. Um, where like as a socialist, I'd say like, yeah, there is objective truth. Uh, but the way that we accumulate facts, the way that we understand the world is necessarily already filtered through theoretical understandings of what the world is. And that has Mm -hmm. political connotations. So like a political framework, you have, it has to go through politics. Yeah. Well, you know, also just obviously take a moment to think about where experts come from. Where are experts made? Right. And they're made in these elite institutions, elite universities, right? Um, Many 
of them will get accepted based on like legacy admission. Um, and so, you know, we've been sold this myth of meritocracy for so long, which is meant to fuel, you know, the trust in the so-called experts, the trust in the science. But I think that like the very model in which these experts become experts is flawed in and of itself and um, uplifts people who aren't necessarily, you know, um, interested in, in, in carrying out accurate scientific research. You know, it's, I think that's a problem as well. Yeah. Yeah. In, intellectual production is a production process and people involved yeah. are people that have, as a member of society, they have class interests. And like, that's the, I think, I mean, uh, Thomas just a moment earlier, like also hit it, like this is, he formulated it really well of something like the, the constraints of, of intellectuals that, um, you know, they, they end up in, in, in these, I think, group think uh, that uh, it ends up becoming necessary for career advancement to to get stuck in certain tracks that it's really only their own self-interest or that of a, of a tiny milieu. And it's not in the public's interest. Um, and so then, you know, and, and we have to then say, like, no, like we don't don't discard science and mm-hmm. like scientific mm-hmm. uh, explanation, scientific inquiry. Uh, we need to basically rescue it from right, right, uh, exactly. from a class that has taken it and, and distorted it so horrendously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, I'm here <laughs> not just to to jump in on all this, but actually because uh, we're gonna do super chats because we're live. And I know the last couple of weeks we weren't live, but right now we are. Um, you know, you could if you if you knew where I lived, you could interrupt the show right now, but you don't, and you're not going to do that. Um, but what do uh, we got? <laughs> you could. Um, so a couple couple things. Um, again, I uh, threw up a super chat a moment earlier from uh, Nevin Noob O five. Thank you for your comment. They said we're beautiful people. It was very sweet. Um, uh, um, there was another one uh, earlier from uh, Tumbawan saying that the assass- they, they think that the assassinations in the 60s of JFK, etc., assuming you mean also the other assassinations, um, MLK and others, all set the stage for massive distrust in government and exploiting the traumas for neoliberal hegemony. Uh, yeah, I, I think that like it's that it's that moment in time. It's the 60s into the 70s. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the Pentagon Papers, but mm. um, uh, Gabby had asked. Um, this is kind of harkening back to the beginning of the show, so maybe this is just like a, a little reminder of where we started today. Because um, she was asking, "What do we suggest can be done about homelessness?" <laughs> it's a big <laughs> yeah, look. It's, a big... it's it's actually it's. So it's not as simple as just put people in homes, right. which, by the way, is part of the solution. A big part, I think, but yeah. A big part, right? And, and probably the most important part. But it goes, it, we need to go further than that, mm-hmm. right? Because a portion of the homeless population does have mental health issues mm-hmm. that are untreated, undiagnosed, yeah. and, and that there's also, there is a problem with drug addiction. As we all know, the opioid uh, epidemic... Um, unfortunately, then transitioned to a heroin um, epidemic. And so when you go to some of these encampments or walk past them, you will see discarded needles, like Mm -hmm. just out in public. So there needs to be funding in order to help people get on their feet. Like, it isn't as simple as like, here's a home, go, go live in the home and be a, you know, a productive (laughs) member of society. It's, and it's going to require 
funding and it's going to require the federal government to actually do the work, Mm -hmm. not put out contracts to private companies that aren't going to do things that are actually going to solve the problem. They're going to just try to find ways to make money. And by the way, in in Los Angeles, with Eric Garcetti granting contracts to these private developers, what they do is they pad their pockets by inflating the costs of the building materials, of the labor, all of that stuff. And it's disgusting. Yeah. I I really like that portion in your segment, Anna, where you kind of look at some of the failures and the shortcomings of the so-called public-private partnerships, because those never work out. Those just turn into, as you say, cash grabs for the private institutions, right? Um, And, you know, in terms of what can be done to end homelessness... um, I feel so bad bringing up Bernie Sanders yet again. I realized that if you were playing a drinking game on how much I talk about Bernie Sanders, both on this show and on the Jacobin show, you would probably be dead of alcohol poisoning by now. And I'm really sorry. You but should he, never apologize <laughs> for, for, for bringing up Bernie. But he did yeah. have, as I, I mean, I like glossed over this in my segment, but like he does or he did put forward while he was running for president last year. A housing for all plan, which, as I said, earmarked $32 billion to helping the homeless. I mean, that's the kind of investment that you need, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, I think I think that, you know, people who want to advocate for things like decriminalizing camping and, and so on and so forth, like, I get it. Like, it's incredibly cruel and, like, so shitty to just punish people for being homeless. Like, I get that there's this kind of visceral and emotional register there, but decriminalization is, unfortunately, without all of that other investment, such a small drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what I liked about Bernie's plan, by the way, was that he had uh, this proposal for a federal rent control program, mm-hmm. yep. which I do think is incredibly important because what we're experiencing, when you, when you don't have a federal program and you allow municipalities to make those decisions for themselves, what ends up happening is, uh, for instance, in Los Angeles, the law is uh, buildings that were built uh, prior to 1974, I believe it is, um, have to be they 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 have to be rent controlled buildings, right? Mm-hmm. So if you rent out that property, and so what ends up happening is these small time landlords get approached by big real estate developers who offer them one large like a lump sum of money that's actually worth more than the market value of their rent controlled apartment building. And the landlords are like, I mean, how am I going to pass up this incredible offer? Mm -hmm. They'll take the money and then the real estate developers will like essentially demolish that building and build a new building, which does not qualify under rent control. So those are the rent control issues that we need to mitigate. And I think that the way that Bernie had proposed his, his policy was a perfect way of mitigating that, right? Ensuring that, you know, all of these weird loopholes on a local level were were done away with. Mm-hmm. Bernard's right again, as always. <laughs> Just like yeah. 100 for O. Um, <laughs> uh, this was a, a comment. Uh, uh, Midi doctors had sent us um, COVID lab theory shock will not stick like, he says Hartman thinks, I, I believe you mean Thomas Frank. Um, COVID is transitory, unlike Trumpism, which people want to believe is transitory. Um, I think, I mean, it is like kind of shocking. I I live in New York. I'm in the East Village. And and so so you're getting closer to knowing where I live. Please don't interrupt the stream. Um, But like when, but when I walk around and like I'm vaccinated, a lot lot of people in the neighborhood are vaccinated. um, And 
people are going back to something called normal. Like there is some kind of normal life back. And I, just, I find it really depressing because it's like, we just lived through a really horrendous, horrific world historic thing. And it's like, okay, I guess I guess we're going to go back to the restaurants that we went to before. And like, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that there's some kind of like, uh, greater political consciousness, but I think it also just speaks to the fact that like, Political consciousness comes through political organizing, not just through, like, horrible big things in the world. Because those happen, and people end up saying, all right, I'm going to go back to, you know, what I was doing before and Mm -hmm. find my way to get through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think on the note also of Trumpism, the the comment said that the fear is that Trumpism is not transitory. That it's something Mm -hmm. that has sort of, like, longer longer roots. Um, I think... I think... Something that's related is we want to make Trumpism ter- transitory, right? Like, and mm. and you know, part of I think what Thomas Frank's work gets at, and like what we talk about, like on the Jacobin Channel all the time, is how do you counter Trumpism, aka this kind of like right wing populism, um, while also creating a political system that works for for working class people or really working class any anybody who's not you know in the one percent basically, um, and like. We, I don't think we have new answers. Uh, I think that we've talked a little bit about some of them on the show already. Uh, rebuilding the labor movement is obviously one of them. As Jane McAlevey always says, there are no shortcuts. Um, and, and yeah. you know, to it, when we're thinking about some of the issues that Thomas Frank brought up, um, how do we hold institutions and elites accountable? Like, I just don't see any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me do a couple more super chats because uh, there are a few more, and I want to try to get to everyone's before we jump off. Um, but uh, Erica says, "Excellent show, ladies and Kale um, and Thomas." Uh, <laughs> uh, unless he was including the ladies, I don't know. Uh, we all know folks are emotional, and science is not. Could should we focus on connecting science to emotions, or attempt to disconnect emotions from science? These feel like oil and water right now. Hmm. You know, I I think it's a really good question. I'm not sure about connecting emotions to science, but I do think that there needs to be, you know, more focus on the conflicts of interest at play with the quote-unquote experts and scientists, right? Because those conflicts, um, like, here, I'll give you a perfect example. So um, the Koch brothers, in their efforts to delegitimize climate change would literally go into science departments on university campuses and fund professors Mm -hmm. and their research, right, to put out disinformation about climate change. So those conflicts are very real. They exist and and they have led to uh, this flow of disinformation that's only been amplified by social media. So I think there needs to be a little more of a focus on that because I, I think like the way liberals think of scientists as these like almost like Jesus figures, right? Mm-hmm. Like trust the science. They're the experts. They know all. They could do us no wrong. Like that's a problem, especially mm-hmm. when we live in a system that has like legalized bribery. <laughs> right, you know, that right. corruption plays a role. Right. Yeah. yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And that kind of got me thinking, or or what you just said kind of got me thinking about how, you know, there's this like 
as you and Thomas Frank were saying, there's this like complete worship of science and like the experts that, you know, we've, we've obviously spent the last hour talking about like the downsides of that. Um, and, and so what I'm about to say, I think isn't quite as prevalent, but there is kind of a strain that sometimes pops up, um, among liberals and on the left, that's sort of anti-science in a way that's like, well, science used to be really racist or like science has been used to uh, like propagate like harmful ideas. And that's all true, but that also does not negate science, right? Like, and I think that, right. you know, going back to what we were saying a little earlier, um, we should we should distinguish between empiricism, which is like mm -hmm. how I think about science and this kind of cult of expertise, uh, but also not, I mean, we can't conflate the two, I think. Um, that doesn't really answer the question about emotions, I, I don't think, but um, maybe hopefully gets at a little a little sliver of it. Mm -hmm. No, but just to, to, to kind of run with that last point a little bit further, I mean, because, again, this is what I was saying a moment earlier ago, is that like all of the when we when someone collects data, when they when a scientist, a social scientist or otherwise is going out into the world and collecting data, they're collecting what they understand to be. Uh, relevant, important information. And how you judge that is already based on certain theoretical conceptions of the world that you mm -hmm. think, okay, well, we're going to measure this, uh, this thing in these terms against this other thing in these other terms. Uh, and so it's, of course, we, that's important, like we need, it's good to have data, you want to have data, but like, you also have to understand, like, what is the actual framework that this data lives within? And again, insofar mm -hmm. as like, the way that information about the world is collected and organized and analyzed scientifically, um, a lot of it happens in elite institutions where the individuals have themselves class biases and class interests. Mm -hmm. They have their own politics. Uh, it does mean that sometimes you'll get distortions, but that doesn't mean that science and a scientific method itself is invalid or, or isn't useful it's it's we need it we need it. we use these kinds of methods all the time all the day all the day every day um you know in our in our own ways uh and scientists you know the, the most scientists are doing extremely useful and effective work obviously um but that's where like we want to get rid of those kinds of class biases and we want working class people who are scientists who are in these, you know, who, who are doing this work. And, and we want those people to be bet, embedded within working class institutions. Um, and I think to, to Erica's question more directly, I mean, I just think it's, I think we have to see the world uh, some, you know, more kind of uh, holistically or, or interconnected in, in the way that it really is that like, you can't actually split off these differences of mm -hmm. like, there is just truth on the one one side, which is like what Anna's saying, like these like Jesus type figures that just they they have reached into the fountain of truth and they have pulled out your answers and um, because they we live in a society and they live in a society and I'm gonna start repeating myself, but like you but you just I think having I honestly I just think like emotion you can't you know take emotion away from myths from this it's important to, to you know these things matter there's horrific things happening. Um, but I think even more important is just having like a class analysis of, of understanding what are the class interests of these people? What is the class structure that reproduces these interests and in these, these situations, these institutions? Um, and so I don't know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm agreeing with you, Erica, but I also think, uh, that it's emotions can be manipulated in any which way. Um, that I, I do think that like the, 
main focus for like the left and for people that um you know more egalitarian type liberals it, it has to be uh we have to talk more about class um which Always. you'll hear me say every week <laughs> um all right last last few things and then we got to go um please shout out autumn leaves and and m toussaint they are our wonderful youtube chat mods they rule they're very good at what they do and we appreciate you guys all the time so thank you um, certainly we do thank you guys um okay uh this could oh, this could be a longer thing but maybe we can keep this a little shorter um this question is corporations are the main gatekeepers of who hear and see what since a lot of independent media rely on their platforms such as google and youtube do independent media does independent media need a plan b in case crackdowns on legit information increases yeah <laughs> i mean oh you know it's funny because i mean i i usually do not trust um let's say that there's like source material for a story right like i want to actually read that source material for myself rather than just rely on how it's being framed either in the media or on social media. Um, Because oftentimes if you read the actual source material, there are pretty glaring differences between the reality and what's being reported, right? So there's that. Um, I think for people who seek information, there's always a way of finding it. So if, let's say, Google is trying to bury certain things, Um, you can usually find those links by going to like DuckDuckGo, uh, which doesn't keep you in this ideological bubble. So I like to use search engines that, you know, don't have um, these algorithms that intentionally keep you in an ideological bubble. But again, there are ways to mitigate the issues now, but I'm worried about the future and I'm worried about, you know, censorship going even further than what we've already experienced. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this goes back to, you know, uh, something that I had asked Thomas Frank about, which was, you know, with the the issue of social media, like when it first started to become a thing, everybody was like, oh, this is so much more democratic. But of course, we now know like when, tiny, you know, a small handful of corporations kind of run uh, the entire structure, they become sort of de facto editors, right? Like they can pick and choose what they want to show or not show. Or even here on YouTube, um, I know that a lot of like YouTube creators like have problems with the algorithm. Like some people think that, you know, some, or, uh, you know, when you look at like the Israel-Palestine conflict, for example, like a lot of Palestinian commentators and journalists and activists were saying that their content had been, you know, suppressed, whether that was deliberate. Um, it seems like in many cases it was, or it was just some sort of glitch of the algorithm or whatever. Like that's a problem. Like you're not like these so-called democratic uh, or these so-called, you know, free-for-all uh, platforms aren't actually as transparent or as democratic as they seem. And, you know, the same goes for other independent news outlets. I mean, we hear a lot these days about Substack. It's great, of course, that, like, I mean, I subscribe to newsletters and, like, it's great that, you know, people who are sort of locked out of traditional media or traditional journalism have this other outlet. In many cases, they have far larger audiences than, you know, the, the institutional or mainstream publications that they were originally locked out of. But that said, like, what if Substack like decides to change how they run their business or like, you know, what I mean, that that's literally dependent on 
the people who run Substack, right? So it's, exactly. yeah, it is, it is a really difficult question and I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, I do feel like I have to plug uh, an upcoming Jacobin Show episode. We're going to have Matt Chrisman on and he's going to talk about the media at large. And I hope to talk, I hope to touch on, you know, these issues of, of alternative and independent media. I'd also like to talk about public media at some point. Um, the mm. U.S. obviously has never had one. And of course, in the U.S., the fear is like, we don't want state media. Like, we don't want government run media. But I guess I just wonder if there is some way to create a public media system that, you know, was state funded, but mm-hmm. that had no state oversight, you know? And I mean, like, I don't know. We're just throwing ideas out here. So we could dream. <laughs> right, yeah, well, I mean, I did... A, d- a decode on the fairness doctrine and what happened after okay. the repeal. Yeah. But like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that was certainly part of what led to this disgusting media environment that we're seeing now full of yeah. um, half truths, uh, disinformation, oftentimes uh, the censorship of information that corporations don't want getting right. out there. Like, you know, so I mean, that the, the repeal of the fairness doctrine was what led to I'm not exaggerating um, Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. He was like yeah. the mm-hmm. first um, beneficiary or, or yeah, of, of that um, right. new media climate. And it just, mm-hmm. it sucks. Yeah. 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 And, and I think the, like the through line, like the principle that drives us forward, and this was, again, also an Anna segment, which you should all check out, um, is that like the, I mean, the principle that underlies this is like small D democracy. Like that's yeah. like, insofar as like, yeah, we want, uh, public media that is not uh, that's not subject to the um, the pressures of markets and of competition of trying to like boost ratings just to like edge out a competitor and, and make a bunch of money. Um, that's important. We want that. But the other side of it also is, of course, that like we want uh, institutions that actually have democratic accountability and mm-hmm. democratic mm-hmm. input. And um, and I think that's where like so much of like the attack on the public uh becomes more potent in the US uh because uh even when we have had uh expansions of uh public public goods public works um it hasn't always had uh the, like the level of democratic input and accountability that it should have and i think that's yeah. something that like as we envision a future post covid sometime but sometime after covid and before the world falls apart from climate change and that <laughs> and that nice little sandwich um, we're trying to think like, what would a nice world look like? I think like public expansion of goods uh, and trying to have them as democratic uh, as possible. Um, the very last super chat, because this is not a question. This is just a little bit of a, a little bit of a journey, an emotional journey that we're going to run through. And then we'll, we'll end the show. Cody mentioned that they lent their after Bernie Jacobin mag to a friend months ago and that uh, he thought that they lost it or that your his friend lost it. But it was found the other day. Cody, I'm so happy for you. And Likewise. good things do happen in the world. <laughs> they do. That's awesome. Thank, thank you, Cody. Um, and I'm glad that I hope your friend read it. I hope that it wasn't like a bullshit excuse of like, oh, I don't know where it is. Like, I'll get back to you later when I actually read it. Um, they liked it so much that they decided to hang on to it for <laughs> yeah. some extra time. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe if, if you're really good friends, maybe you should get her a subscription. Maybe that's mm-hmm. that's something you can do on the Jackman website. <laughs> just an idea. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying you have to do this, but just if you were thinking of getting a gift for this friend of yours, uh, and like I don't know, you had like, you know, just a little bit of money to kick around. Like the uh, print subscription is like really reasonably priced. You get a lot of good stuff. 
And uh, it's just, just an option. And I think you get a little discount if you subscribe through the YouTube channel, right? Like, there's, yeah. we have a link in the description box Ooh. where you get a little, get a little something off. <laughs> we don't know any of the numbers. It's, <laughs> I think, it's I think ten dollars like off. <laughs> yeah, it's ten dollars off. Sorry, <laughs> we're like um, the worst salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, print is typically thirty bucks, but you get ten dollars off if you click on the link in the in the thing in the YouTube. On the YouTube, there's a link, and you click that. And then you get some money back. So um, do it. It's called socialism. You should look it up. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll I'll shut up there. I think it's a good spot to end. But uh, thank you both, <laughs> Jen. Thanks for jumping on and filling in Nando's spot. I'm Nando. Okay, thanks. And Kale, thank you for filling in for me last week. Um, I love this. I love that we help each other out. Um, and yeah. you know, it's a good show. Good people. And thank you for reading the super chats for us. Uh, and everyone else, thank you for watching. Jen, you've been an absolute delight. I hope you'll come back on again. Love a um, crossover. It was very fun to be on with you, Anna. And yeah, we'll, we'll see you all guys soon. Absolutely. Have a great weekend, guys. 